Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. So, it was a curious thing this week that I got a lot of texts from numbers I didn't recognize. <laughs> so, thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> that was fun. Um, that doesn't land. Go listen to last week's message. Um, so, something I've never had to be commanded to do, instructed to do, told to do, um, is drink coffee every morning. No one's ever told me to do that. Now, uh, something I have been told to do or commanded to do, either by sign or by police officer, is to drive 45 down Green Hill. That is a, an instruction that I have needed in my life, right? Because, and part of this is because when I wake up, I naturally want to drink coffee. I already want to do it. When I drive down Green Hill, what I want to do is go 60 miles an hour. That's what I want to do. Uh, it's just a long stretch of straight road, right? And so it's asking to be sped on. But, uh, I, but I need to be commanded to do that because it's not naturally what I want to do. Now, my guess is, is that you've never had to command your kids to eat candy or to finish their ice cream, right? But you've probably had to instruct them to eat broccoli or whatever vegetable you've you know, prepared uh, for that evening. Um, it's because we don't, need to be commanded what, we're, what we already will naturally do, right? I, I don't need to tell my son to play video games, but we do need to tell him to clean his room. Now, interestingly, we don't need to tell our daughter to clean her room. She already naturally does that in kind of a weird way, right? But we do need to tell her to close the refrigerator in a reasonable amount of time, right? Like... This is not our air conditioner. We actually have one of those. And so you can close the fridge. It'll be okay, right? Like, we need to be commanded. Most often, we need to be commanded to our weakness, not to our strengths, not to the things we're already going to do, but to the things that we aren't naturally going to do. And a helpful thing as you approach the Bible is to recognize that God does not arbitrarily make up rules. He doesn't arbitrarily make up commands and then impose those rules like an unthoughtful parent, right? No, if God is telling us to do something, it's probably because we weren't already going to do it. God commands to our weakness, because left to ourselves, we wouldn't naturally do those things that accord with God's design for human flourishing. And so we need to be commanded to do those things, to have eyes to see those things that we should step into if we want to flourish according to God's design. Now, what we're going to see through this encounter that Jesus has with this rich young ruler is that Jesus commands to his weakness, and my guess is this morning is that he's actually going to command to a lot of our weaknesses in this room, especially when it comes to our money and our possessions. Now, something that I've noticed over the last 14 years of being in full-time ministry, it, it's pretty interesting actually, is that uh, it used to be that talking about sexual issues was a totally taboo thing. Like you just didn't really talk about it. I don't know if this, is, if this was kind of a result of the pre-internet age and now coming into the internet age where it, it just seems as though the more overtly sexual our just society in general has become, the less taboo it has been 
to talk about uh, sexual things, especially within the church. It's not uncommon anymore to sit, you know, in, in, a, in a church setting or in a connection group setting and for someone to bring up struggling with, you know, uh, sexual sin or something like that. Talking about sex, sexual issues, isn't nearly as uncomfortable for most people today, at least as it used to be. Now, interestingly, talking about money and possessions is just as uncomfortable today as it used to be. Today, it's way more common for men and women to talk about their online browsing habits than it is to talk about their online spending habits. People are more willing to get into the nitty-gritty nitty about purity than they are about stewardship. I, I, have had, I have had way more men voluntarily show me their browsing history, and I have had no one show me their banking history. But what the gospel does, what the gospel should do, is it, is it should totally reorient our attitude and our approach to our wealth and our possessions, to our money and the things that we have. And what we have in our passage this morning in Mark 10 is, a famous, is this famous encounter that Jesus has with, uh, with what's known as the rich young ruler. That, that may have been the, the heading in your Bible there. And now Mark doesn't describe him as that, but what we have actually with this encounter is that this encounter shows up in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. And so when you kind of put all of those accounts together of this same interaction, we know that this man was rich, we know that he was young, and we know that he was a ruler or, or think uh, he was a judge. He was someone in authority in that society. Now, right off the bat, what this rich young ruler shows us in this encounter Encounter with Jesus is the futility of trusting in money and possessions. Because notice, the guy is running up to Jesus asking him for something. Now, you would go, well, he's rich, he's young, he, he has power, he has possessions, he has influence, he has youth. What more could he need? But clearly, this guy had attained, you could say, all that there is to have, and yet still recognized that he lacked something. He didn't know what it was, necessarily, and he didn't know how to get it, but he knew that there was, a, there was this deep internal desire that his, that his money, his possessions, his wealth, and his influence had still not yet given him. And now perhaps the most famous verse in this really famous passage is verse 25. If you look at it, it says, it is easier, this is Jesus talking, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is using a metaphor. He's using, he's using a metaphor. He's using hyperbole. He's, he's talking about um, the largest land animal that would have been known at the time. And then he's, and then he's, using the smallest, like, human-made object at the time. And he's simply highlighting the, the, the near impossibility of the rich entering the kingdom. It would, it would be like us today saying, uh, like, a, a snowball's chance in hell, or something like that. Like, like some hyperbole that is just, is, is just overstating it to make the point. And, and I say near impossibility of the rich entering the kingdom, because um, what we see all throughout Scripture, actually, is that there are plenty of rich people who are clearly in the kingdom of God. You think of people like Abraham, you think of people like Jacob, you think of people like Job. And not only that, but then in verse, uh, in verse 24, he doesn't say it's 
utterly impossible, but he says that it's difficult. And then what we see in verse 27 is that he says, let's, let's even say this was impossible. What's impossible with man is possible with God. But what Jesus would have been saying here would have totally been disorienting, disorienting for the disciples. It would have totally thrown them off. Now, why? Why did the disciples act so surprised when Jesus said it's very difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Well, today, there, there's a lot of ways to view money. There's a lot of ways to view, view wealth. But there, I'd say there's probably two predominant ways that we view wealth, money, possessions. The first is, is that some, some might view having money as the result of hard work or being really smart, financially savvy, right? And so if you have wealth then that's seen in a positive light because that is, that is like, that's the result of hard work or financial set. You're, you're clever. Maybe you're clever or a hard worker. And so in this way of thinking, if you don't have money, if you don't have possessions, then that must automatically mean that you really aren't that clever or you really aren't that hard of a worker. You could perhaps call this maybe the conservative view of wealth. We live in a free country. If you just work hard enough, then it'll automatically happen that you'll have money, you'll have wealth, you'll have possessions. Now, the other way that wealth is often viewed, at least in our society, is that it's not viewed as a result of hard work, but it's, it's, it's maybe viewed more as kind of the result of oppression and corporate or individual greed. And so if you're wealthy, then that means that you've stepped on somebody else to get ahead and your wealth is a result of some sort of exploitation, that you've maybe taken advantage of people like that. You, you, you could maybe call this the supposedly like liberal view of wealth, but you see in ancient cultures, wealth wasn't seen predominantly as a result of hard work or as a result of unjust actions, though certainly those things can be at play in any society at any time. But what wealth was viewed as in ancient cultures was that it was a result of divine blessing. In other words, if you were wealthy, then the way that people tended to think of you was that you were the kind of person that God or the gods wanted to bless. You had the favor of God if you were wealthy. So when Jesus says that it's easier for a candle to go through the eye of a needle than it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, the disciples hear that and they go, if, the well, if those who are blessed by God, if those who have God's favor clearly, because how else would they have what they have? If those people can't get into the kingdom, then how can anyone get in? And so Jesus totally challenges their view of wealth. And Jesus totally challenges our view of wealth by basically saying, that being wealthy is actually more of, a li- more of a liability than it is an asset. Now, why is that? Why would Jesus say that? That, that, is so, that was so countercultural for them today, and it's so countercultural for us today to think that, it, for, for different reasons, sure, but to, why would Jesus say that, that being wealthy, having money, is more of a liability than it is an asset? Well, if we zoom out a little bit and look at the context of what Jesus, of this encounter with this rich young ruler, we'll see that just before this passage, there's this, all, there's this little 
passage that's also very famous where uh, people were bringing children to Jesus, right? And the disciples are trying to get the children away from Jesus. But Jesus says in, in Mark chapter 10, verse 15, uh, to, to let the little children come to me. And then he says in, in verse 15, truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Now, what is he saying? He's saying that in order to enter the kingdom of God, you must have the humility and dependence of a little child. It doesn't mean that only the young can enter the kingdom clearly, but it is to say that little children are aware of their dependence in, in, in a kind of way that we must also be aware of if we're gonna come to God for salvation. We need to have humility and dependence in order to even begin to recognize our great need for salvation. And then immediately after this, we get this encounter with this rich young man. Now, it isn't a coincidence that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of them put these two encounters side by side, the little children and the rich young ruler. And they put them together to show the great contrast between those who recognize their need and those who don't. Those who recognize their neediness before God and those who don't. You see, this, this rich young ruler was obviously looking for something that his wealth, that his possessions, that his youth, that his influence couldn't give him. And he was obviously looking for something that even his own self-righteousness couldn't get, couldn't get him. Because you see Jesus' response. It's interesting. When, when this rich young ruler asks Jesus, how do I inherit uh, eternal life? Jesus tells him, well, you need to obey these commands. And then this rich guy replies, I've kept all these from my youth. You see, he thought he was righteous. He thought he was righteous enough for God. But then Jesus replies in verse 21, he says, you lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. You see, Jesus, like a good surgeon, knew exactly what was wrong with this guy. He lacked one thing. And what was it that he lacked? What he lacked was the ability to see that he had a God above God. And that God that he had above God was his possessions, was his wealth, was his money. He thought he had kept all the other commandments, and yet what he had failed to see was that he had, he had failed to see that he, that he hadn't even kept the very first commandment, to not have any other gods before God. And we know this because he walked away depressed by Jesus' response. Jesus' demand that he, that he sell all his possessions, give to the poor, and then come follow him, he walks away depressed. Why? It's because he wanted his money more than he wanted discipleship. You see, one thing that money tends to do, one thing that having money tends to do, is that it, it tends to amplify what you really love. Because you, you have the resources to really step into those things that you love. It tends to amplify those things that we trust in and rely on and desire more than God. Now, at, now at this point, before we go any further, I want to make it very clear that what we're talking about this morning is your money. Now, why, now, why do I need to make that clear? I need to make that clear because uh, I have been in a lot of conversations 
I've sat in on a lot of connection groups over the years, that when the conversation about money and generosity comes up, it's very interesting how creative we tend to get in trying to make generosity about everything but money. We'll tend to go, well, it's not, oh, well, the gender, generosity, you know, it's more than money, right? It's, you know, it's time and it's, it's our abilities and all those kinds of things. But Jesus doesn't let this guy, and he doesn't let us wiggle out of dealing with our actual heart idol by redefining generosity in terms of just time and talent. So it's certainly those things. No, he's talking about money and possessions. Now, this isn't to say that, that uh, we shouldn't be generous with our time. This isn't to say we shouldn't be generous with the way that God has naturally gifted us, but it is to say that generosity in other areas does not absolve us from needing to be generous with our finances as well. And the reason for this is because Jesus knows that if our relationship with money is not transformed by the gospel, then what money will do is it will trick us into thinking that we are way less dependent on God than we actually are. And it does this in a bunch of ways. Money tricks us in a bunch of interesting ways. Now, I don't, uh, I don't have time to get into like all the ways that money can do this, that the, that the influence of money can have in our lives in this way, but I just wanna highlight uh, four things real quick. And those four things... That when, we, that when our approach to money isn't transformed by the gospel, we will often become addicted to the benefits of money. We will be allured by the promises of money. Our money can make us blind to the needs of others. And having money, loving money, can make us proud. So we can become addicted to his benefits, allured by his promises, blind to the needs of others, and proud. So real quick, we, we, we can become addicted to its benefits. What do I mean? Well, I, perhaps you've noticed is if, if you've ever gotten a raise or if you've ever gotten a new job and, and your, your income has gone up either substantially or even just a little bit, uh, what can tend to happen is that the more you make, that slowly and in little ways you will begin to increase your expenses. Those little things that used to be like luxuries now become normal because you can afford it. It's like, I make enough now. I can actually afford this, right? Those, little, those, those luxuries become normal and then the luxuries now are just a little bit more. We call, that, we call this lifestyle creep. In other words, it, the, the more money, it, it's very often the case that the more, money that the, the more money you have, the less money you think you have. You say, where do you get that? Well, it's just empirically true. Every study shows this, that those with higher incomes give less by percentage away to charity. And those with lower incomes give more by percentage away to charity. Charity, gospel work, missions, churches, whatever it is. Now, why is that? It's because the lifestyle that money can buy becomes an addiction. And, and, and like any addiction, it's not content to stay where it's at, but it will slowly but surely constantly ask for more and more and more and more. And this is why often the more money you have, the less money you feel that you have. 
So we can become addicted to its benefits. Number two, we can become allured by its promises. And probably the biggest promise that my guess is that most of us think that, uh, that money can fulfill is the promise of security. That if I just have enough in, a, in the bank, if I have enough investments, then if I lose my job, I'll be okay. Or maybe I won't lose my job, but uh, I won't have to work the rest of my life, but I can retire hopefully early and that'd be, that'd be really nice. And then I'll have enough money to have a good retirement and just you know, be able to enjoy my life. It can allure us into a false sense of security because we think that money can solve the biggest problems that life can throw at us. Now, this isn't to say... Uh, I don't want to overstate the case. It isn't to say that money isn't helpful in eliminating some obstacles or eliminating some barriers in life. That's certainly true. We just know that. But it is to say that money cannot insulate you from the worst things that could happen in your life. Can, can money protect you from the death of a spouse? If you just have enough money in the bank, will that, does that automatically mean that your spouse will never die? Can money protect you from the, the death of a child? Can money protect you from cancer? I've never sat in a hospital or beside someone's bed after a loved one has died and heard, well, if we just had more money, they would have lived. Can money protect you from infertility? Can money protect you from the broken relationships that might exist between you and your parents or, or you and your children? There are, there are a million things that money can't protect us from. In fact, money can't protect us from some of, from the biggest things the biggest hardships we could possibly ever go through in our life. And yet we can get lulled into a false sense of security by thinking that as long as I have enough money in the bank, as long as I have enough in, in investments, then everything will be okay. And it just isn't true. So we can become addicted to its benefits. We can become allured by its promises. And number three, we can, we can become blind to the needs of others. Now, one way this happens is that the more money you have, the more wealth you have, it tends to allow you to live in certain places, to live in certain neighborhoods, to do certain things, to be around certain kinds of people. Uh, in this way, money can, money can give you access. Uh, you, you probably, my guess is, you probably don't uh, intentionally do this, but you just, you buy the house that you can afford. And the more money you have, the better the house is. The more money you have, the more things you can, you know, the more exclusive uh, sports clubs or whatever you can get, you know, you can pay for your kids to be in, all those kinds of things. And you, tend, you can tend to be in social circles with people who, who at least have as much money as you, if not probably a little bit more. So even within your own social circle, you go, I don't have a lot of money. And it, it's all comparative, right? Because your social circle looks a certain way. And so you can tend to end up living according to a very similar status as those who are around you, which means that if you aren't careful, then you'll begin to only recognize the physical needs that exist in your, in your, in your bubble, in your social sphere. And what can happen 
Is that, you, is that while you know in your head that poverty exists around the world or even in your own community, you look around your own social circle and you actually don't see that many physical needs. And so you know in your head that poverty exists, but functionally you can end up living as though it doesn't. In other words, it's very likely that the more money you have, if you aren't careful, I'm not saying this is automatic, but it's, it's, it's often and inadvertent, If you aren't careful, you'll become blind to the needs of others. So we we can become addicted to its benefits, allured by its promises, blind to the needs of others. And number four, money can make us proud. I I, I was really benefited by by an old sermon from Tim Keller years ago, where he makes the point that what happens if if you're financially savvy, if if you're smart with money, Smart about making money, investing money, saving money, whatever it is. What can happen is that you won't just say, I'm financially smart. What your heart will do is your heart will say, I'm smart. What can happen is, is, is you can look around and, and you won't just say, I'm financially better off than others. What your heart will say is, I'm better. What can happen is that you won't just say, I, I have everything I want. What your heart will end up saying is I can get everything I need on my own. Now, Jesus doesn't demand that this guy sells all of his possessions because he doesn't want him to own anything. That's not the point. This isn't some like poverty gospel, Right? He doesn't tell him to do that because he doesn't want him to own anything. It's, but it's because Jesus knew that the things that this guy owned actually owned him. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to be, like, in order to be saved, you have to give away everything you have. That, that, isn't, that isn't the case. Because there, there, there are plenty of people, as you read through Scripture, who ask Jesus basically the same question, maybe not in the same words, but basically ask, what, what, must I knew to be, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus does not categorically answer every single person with, well, sell your possessions and give it all to the poor and come follow me. He doesn't say that. But, so why does he say it to this guy here? It's because Jesus knew what was specifically keeping this guy from receiving the kingdom. And it was that he didn't have a childlike dependence on God because all of his trust, all of his hope, all of his confidence, all of his security was wrapped up in his financial position. In other words, Jesus knew that what this guy had was blinding him to what he actually needed. And my guess is if we're really honest, if we're really honest this morning, but it's possible that many of us are actually blind to how much our money and possessions actually own us. So if, if that's true, how in the world can we be free from loving money and from looking to money to give us what only God can give us? How can we be free then? Well, the only way that we can ever be free from the power of money is actually to look to the rich young ruler. Now you might go, that, that makes no sense. Why in the world? This guy, this guy is a pretty depressing picture 
of someone with wealth. Like, doesn't, doesn't he walk away depressed? Isn't he a sad, greedy man? Like, so why, to be free from the power of money, why in the world would I look to, why would I look to him? Why would I look to the rich young ruler? And I go, no, not, not that one. Don't you see that in this passage, there are actually two rich young rulers? We have this guy, the guy who walked away depressed. But then we have the other guy, the guy who's talking to this guy, the one of whom it's said in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. Did you notice before Jesus told him to go sell all that he had and give it away to the poor? Did you notice what it said? What did it say? Looking at him, Jesus loved him. You see, what we have with this encounter with Jesus is an earthly rich man talking to a heavenly rich man. And you can imagine, you can imagine in your mind's eye as Jesus turns to this guy, him just saying, oh, my friend, I know what I'm asking of you is difficult. But I, like you, was once rich. But because I love you so deeply, I've become poor so that you might be rich towards God. Now, some of you aren't Christians, and so you don't, you don't really know whether you actually believe that Jesus was the Son of God who lived and died and rose again, all this kind of stuff. If that's you, can you at least see, can you at least begin to see like this, this rich young ruler did, that even when you get the things that you want, they don't actually really satisfy you? They do for a time, sure. For a time, it's very shiny, it's very nice, it's very new, it has that smell, right? But you know, can you at least begin to recognize that all the things that you ever get eventually lose their sparkle and then you're kind of like on looking to the next thing. You're on trying to satisfy that next desire. C.S. Lewis describes this, this pursuit this way. He says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. So if you're not a Christian this morning, friends, would you, would you at least consider the possibility that your constant desires for the next new things are little signposts? They're little indicators that it's a symptom of a reality, that there is a deep eternal desire that exists within you that only Jesus can ultimately satisfy. But if you're a Christian, what that means is that that means that you believe that Jesus Christ became poor and was stripped of his garments and his privilege for your sake so that you can be saved. Now, the question this morning is, do you actually believe that? I mean, you, if you're a Christian, you, at least you say you believe that, but do you actually believe that? Do you really believe that Jesus Christ was, was a rich young ruler who gave up everything for you? 
Now, how can you tell? What's one way you can tell that you actually believe that? How can you know when the generosity of Christ for your salvation has actually penetrated to the deepest parts of your heart? Well, one way to tell, you can tell how much you really grasp what Christ has done for you is by looking at how loosely you hold on to your money and your possessions. Now, it's possible that, that we've gotten to this point in the message and you're just kind of like, Jake, just get to the point. Tell me how much you want me to give, right? It's like, it's like you're a pastor. I know the church just wants my money. Just tell me how much you want, okay? And all right, it's like, that's, that's actually not the point. I'm, I'm less interested in the church getting your money than I am in God getting your heart, all right? But you might go, well, how much should I give then, right? If an indicator in, in, how, in how deeply I actually understand the gospel is how much I give, then how much should I give? Now, I'd say that's, that's actually not the first question you need to answer. It's not a bad question. It's, it's a good question. It's just not the first question. The first question that you need to answer is, why don't I want to give away more money than I already do? Because the answer to that question will begin to reveal what your actual heart idols are. But once you've answered that, the answer to how much you should give, and I, and I don't have time, and you probably go, praise God, you don't. And I don't have time to like really get into this, you know, but, but I would say that the gospel-fueled Christian approach to, to generosity and to financial giving is to give so much away that it actually affects the way you live your life to give to an extent that it actually affects the kinds of cars you drive, the, kinds of house, the, the kind of house you live in, the kind of vacations you take, like that it actually begins to affect the way you have to make decisions about other things. Because it, 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 and it's only when you do that and you enjoy doing that that you can begin to know that greed actually doesn't have a grip on your heart. When you enjoy giving away to such an extent that it actually affects the way you live. You say, I can't imagine ever enjoying doing that. Well, the only way you can enjoy giving like this is when you don't just know in your head, but you truly believe when the truth has truly gripped your heart that Jesus wasn't stingy in spilling his blood to save you. Praise God that Jesus did not tithe his blood for our salvation. So do you wanna be free from the grip of money and possessions? Friends, look to the rich young ruler who gave all that he had to make you eternally rich. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, what lavish grace, what tremendous generosity. Oh, that you didn't just give part of yourself a small portion, you gave all of yourself for us. Oh, Jesus, would the fact that you became poor so we might become rich grip our hearts? Would you make us a generous people? Would you loosen our grip on our finances, our possessions? 
would we enjoy giving away because you have been so generous towards us. And with this countercultural generosity, with this countercultural approach to our possessions, serve as a testimony of your greatness. Serve to, to reveal the reality that Jesus, you are better than anything this world could ever offer us. And therefore we hold loosely to the things of this world. We enjoy them to your glory and we give them away to your glory. Would that be true of us? I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.